There comes a time for all of us when we ask ourselves, isn't there more to life? Understanding these desires for a better life and a hopeful future can best be achieved as we understand the why of our life. This why or purpose is a yearning to do meaningful work in the service of something bigger than ourselves. So how does someone find and identify this purpose? Not a future of meeting milestones and accomplishments, but a future where your purpose gives you direction toward a life of happiness and meaning. Before we can tap into our full potential, we need to understand who we are. The Apostle Peter had an experience that illustrates this very point. After the Lord was crucified, the resurrected Lord found Peter who was again at his nets. The Lord saw great potential in Peter and asked him a question to call him from something good and to rise up to something greater and of more worth. Lovest thou me more than these? Peter could spend more time fishing, or he could immediately rise and give his life to the meaningful work he was meant to perform, to feed the Lord's sheep. He chose to break out of his life pattern, to embrace a higher calling. He became a fisher of men. The very question that helped Peter make a greater future for himself is extended to all of us. Lovest thou me more than these? Is your life in line with that guided love? Or are you coasting with things of lesser value? How can you choose to add your unique talents to do meaningful work in the service of others? If these life questions feel overwhelming, ask for the Lord's help. He will answer. Think of just one person that is close to you that could use an act of service and love, no matter how small. Then, act on it. Trust that the Lord will guide you step by step and day by day to his sheep that need you. With each small and simple act of love, you will notice a faint guiding light that will lead you along, performing the meaningful work you were uniquely meant to perform. Purpose is often found through small and seemingly insignificant acts of service that build a beautiful tapestry of meaning and fulfillment. Like Peter, if there are any empty nets pulling your focus from serving a higher life purpose, have the courage to leave them behind. Then, seek the Lord's guidance on your next step. With patience and persistence, little by little, the Lord will help clarify what matters, what has eternal significance, and will help you discover what He has prepared for you. Finding purpose is not a one-time event. It's a continual journey of recognizing when we feel like we're coming up empty, and it can happen at different periods of our life. But as we continue to ask these questions and realign, we will refine our identity, understand our unique gifts and passions, and clarify our values. You will also find that the Lord is building you through the process and making you more as you freely give yourself to his sheep. Have the courage to leave your nets and trust that the Lord will help you find what will bring you greater joy and help you live life with purpose. divine potential of all of God's children and in our ability to become something more in Christ. In the Lord's timing, it is not where we start, but where we are headed that matters most. To demonstrate this principle, 
I will draw on some basic math. The intercept for our purposes is the beginning of our line. The intercept can have either a high or a low starting point. The slope of the line can then be positively or negatively inclined. We all have different intercepts in life. We start in different places with different life endowments. Some are born with high intercepts, full of opportunity. Others face beginning circumstances that are challenging and seem unfair. We then progress along a slope of personal progress. Our future will be determined far less by our starting point and much more by our slope. Jesus Christ sees divine potential no matter where we start. He saw it in the beggar, the sinner, and the infirm. He saw it in the fisherman, the tax collector, and even the zealot. No matter where we start, Christ considers what we do with what we are given. While the world focuses on our intercept, God focuses on our slope. In the Lord's calculus, He will do everything He can to help us turn our slopes toward heaven. This principle should give comfort to those who struggle and pause to those who seem to have every advantage. Let me start by addressing individuals with difficult starting circumstances, including poverty, access to education, and challenging family situations. Others face physical challenges, mental health constraints, or strong genetic predispositions. For any struggling with difficult starting points, please recognize that the Savior knows our struggles. He took upon Him our infirmities that His bowels might be filled with mercy, that He might know how to succor us according to our infirmities. Let me share two areas of encouragement for those with difficult starting circumstances. First, focus on where you are headed and not where you began. It would be wrong to ignore your circumstances. They are real and need to be addressed. But over-focusing on a difficult starting point can cause it to define you and even constrain your ability to choose. Let me share two areas of counsel for those with elevated starting points. First, can we show some humility for circumstances we may not have created ourselves? As former BYU president Rex E. Lee quoted to his students, we have all drunk from wells we did not dig and warmed ourselves by fires we did not build. He then called on his students to give back and replenish the educational wells that earlier pioneers had built. Failure to reseed the fields planted by others can be the equivalent of returning a talent without increase. Second, focusing on a high starting point can often trap us into feeling that we are thriving, when in fact, our inner slope may be quite stagnant. 
Whether we start in abundant or difficult circumstances, let us keep our sights and our slopes pointed heavenward. As we do, Christ will lift us to a higher place. In nature, trees that grow up in a windy environment become stronger as winds whip around a young sapling. Forces inside the tree do two things. First, they stimulate the roots to grow faster and spread farther. Second, the forces in the tree start creating cell structures that actually make the trunk and branches thicker and more flexible to the pressure of the wind. These stronger roots and branches protect the tree from winds that are sure to return. My young friends, the world will not glide calmly toward the second coming of the Savior. The scriptures declare that all things shall be in commotion, more concerning than the prophesied earthquakes and wars are the spiritual whirlwinds that can uproot you from your spiritual foundations and land your spirit in places you never imagined possible, sometimes without your hardly noticing that you have been moved. The worst whirlwinds are the temptations of the adversary. Sin always has been and always will be a part of this world, but it has never been so accessible, insatiable, and acceptable. There is, of course, a powerful force that will subdue the winds of sin. It is called repentance. How do you prepare for your whirlwinds? Remember, it is upon the rock of our Redeemer, who is Christ, the Son of God, that you must build your foundation, that when the devil shall send forth his mighty winds, his shafts in the whirlwind, when all his hail and his mighty storm shall beat upon you, it shall have no power to drag you down because of the rock upon which ye are built. This is your safety in the whirlwind. Where did we come from? Why are we here on earth? Where do we go after we die? Members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints believe that God has a plan for us. It's called the plan of salvation, and it contains answers to all of these questions and more. Latter-day Saints believe that everyone on earth is a child of God. He is our Heavenly Father, and He loves us. His purpose, His work, and His glory is to bring to pass the immortality and eternal life of His children. In other words, He wants us to return to Him and live with Him in a state like Him forever. To help us do that, Heavenly Father presented a plan for us to follow. In the Scriptures, this plan is known as the plan of happiness, the plan of redemption, and the plan of salvation. Let's take a more detailed look at the plan. Before we were born on earth, we lived as spirit children of our Heavenly Father. 
This stage of our eternal progression is known as our pre-earth life or the pre-mortal existence. Because of the love and glory of our Father in heaven, we wanted to become more like Him. For this to happen, God knew that each of us needed to receive a physical body. This mortal life, with all its challenges and its joys, would be a chance to learn through experience and see if we will do all things whatsoever the Lord God shall command us. Under the direction of Heavenly Father, Jesus Christ created the earth so that we could have a place to do all this. Thus, in the pre-earth life, we chose to accept this plan of salvation and enter mortality. Here, God continues to grant us agency, which is the freedom to act so that we can learn the difference between good and evil and choose to do good. One way that God wants us to show our love for Him is to obey the commandments He gives us. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind. As part of these commandments, God asks us to receive sacred ordinances, like baptism. As Jesus taught, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. By receiving these ordinances, we make covenants or promises with God. We promise to follow Him, and in return, He promises to bless us. Of course, God knew that we would make mistakes here on earth. And if we couldn't repent of our sins, we wouldn't be worthy to live with Him again. To make it possible for us to overcome our sins, God chose Jesus Christ to be our Savior and Redeemer. As part of the plan of salvation, Jesus Christ would be born on earth, teach us, establish his church, and suffer and die for our sins. Because of Jesus Christ's sacrifice, we can repent and be forgiven of our sins and mistakes. And because of his resurrection, we too will all be resurrected one day and live forever. As the Apostle Paul wrote, For as in Adam all die. Even so in Christ shall all be made alive. Of course, before we can be resurrected, we must die. Just like birth, death is part of the plan of salvation. Losing friends and loved ones is hard. We know, though, that the Spirit is eternal. After death, the people we care about and everyone else born on the earth live on. At death, our spirits leave our mortal bodies and go to the spirit world. In the spirit world, we wait for the time when our bodies will be resurrected. For those people who chose to follow God on earth, the spirit world is a place of peace and rest from earthly cares. The scriptures also tell us, in the spirit world, the gospel of Jesus Christ is preached to those who never had the chance to hear it during their time on earth, as well as to those who chose not to follow God's commandments. When our time to be resurrected comes, our spirit will be reunited with our physical body. But this time, our physical body will be perfect and immortal, and we will never again experience physical death. After the resurrection, we will come back into the presence of God to be judged. We will have a perfect memory of the bad and good things we did during our life on earth. Because He is our Savior and Redeemer, Jesus Christ will act as our advocate at the day of judgment. If we have repented of our sins, then we will be forgiven of our past mistakes. Both the New Testament and modern revelation teach that there is more than one kingdom of heaven, or degrees of glory, where resurrected people will dwell after Judgment Day. As Jesus himself said, 
in my Father's house are many mansions. The first of these, and the highest degree, is the celestial kingdom. In the scriptures, the celestial kingdom is represented by the sun to evoke its light and glory. This is where the righteous will live, that is, those people who repented of their sins, received the ordinances of the gospel, and were faithful to the covenants they made with God. God the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ, dwell in the celestial kingdom. Those people who merit life in the celestial kingdom will live with and be like God forever in a state of glory and happiness. Another kingdom, known as the terrestrial kingdom, is provided for those who live generally good lives, but they were not as faithful to the gospel of Christ. In scripture, the terrestrial kingdom is represented by the brightness of the moon. Those people who led evil lives during mortality, but eventually in the spirit world acknowledge Christ as the Savior, will live in the celestial kingdom, the lowest of the three degrees of glory. In the scriptures, the celestial kingdom's glory is compared to the stars. Lastly, there is a place of punishment reserved for Satan and the most wicked. It's called outer darkness or hell. The greatest blessing we can ever receive is to live with and like God, together with our family in the celestial kingdom forever. This is what Latter-day Saints mean by the word exaltation. So let's review. What is the plan of salvation? The plan of salvation is God's plan to help us, His spirit children, to become like Him. In His plan, we are born here on earth where we learn to follow His commandments. He also sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to atone for the mistakes we'd inevitably make. After we die, our spirits live on in the spirit world where we will await the resurrection and day of judgment. At the judgment, we will be assigned to one of the three degrees of glory or outer darkness. The judgment will be based on our actions on earth and who we have become. God loves us. He wants us to know about the plan of salvation because he wants us to return to live with him and be like him forever. Now you know. I was introduced to a trail in Israel by my good friend Elon. It's called the Jesus Trail, he said, because it's the path from Nazareth to Capernaum that many believe Jesus walked. I decided right then and there I wanted to walk that trail, so I began planning a trip to Israel. Six weeks before the trip, I broke my ankle. My husband worried about the injury. My greatest concern was how I would walk the Jesus Trail one month later. I am stubborn by nature, so I didn't cancel the plane tickets. I remember meeting our Israeli guide that beautiful June morning. I hopped out of the van and then pulled out a set of crutches and a knee scooter. Maya, our guide, took one look at my cast and said, uh, I don't think you can walk this trail in that condition. Maybe not, I replied, but there's nothing that prevents me from trying. She gave a slight nod and we began. I love her for that, for believing I could walk the trail broken. I navigated the steep path and the boulders for a time on my own. Then, moved by the sincerity of my commitment, Maya pulled out a thin rope, tied it to the handlebars of my scooter, and began to pull. 
She pulled me up the hills, through lemon orchards, and along the banks of the Sea of Galilee. At the journey's end, I expressed gratitude for my sweet guide who had helped me accomplish something I could have never accomplished on my own. When the Lord called Enoch to journey through the land and testify of him, Enoch hesitated. He was just a lad, slow of speech. How could he walk that path in his condition? He was blinded by what was broken in him. The Lord's answer to what hindered him was simple and immediate. Walk with me. Like Enoch, we must remember that the one who was bruised and broken for us will allow mortality to do its work in us, but he doesn't ask us to face those challenges alone. No matter the heaviness of our story or the current course of our path, he will invite us to walk with him. Think of the young man in a spot of trouble who met the Lord in a wilderness place. Jacob had journeyed far from home. In the dark of night, he had a dream that not only contained a ladder, but also held significant covenant promises, including what I like to call the five-finger promise. On that night, the Lord stood beside Jacob, introduced himself as the God of Jacob's father, and then promised, I am with you. I will keep you safe. I will bring you home again. I will not leave you. I will keep my promise to you. Jacob had a choice to make. He could choose to live his life simply acquainted with the God of his father, or he could choose to live life in committed covenant relationship with him. Years later, Jacob testified of a life lived within the Lord's covenant promises. God answered me in the day of my distress and was with me in the way which I went. Just as he did for Jacob, the Lord will answer each of us in our day of distress if we choose to tether our life with his. He has promised to walk with us in the way. We call this walking the covenant path, a path that begins with the covenant of baptism and leads to deeper covenants we make in the temple. Perhaps you hear those words and think of checkboxes. Maybe all you see is a path of requirements. A closer look reveals something more compelling. A covenant is not only about a contract, although that is important. It's about a relationship. President Russell M. Nelson taught the covenant path is all about our relationship with God. Consider a marriage covenant. The wedding date is important, but equally important is the relationship forged through the life lived together afterward. The same is true with a covenant relationship with God. Conditions have been set, and there will be expectations along the way. And yet, he invites each of us to come as we are able, with full purpose of heart, and to press forward with him at our side, trusting that his promised blessings will come. Scripture reminds us that often those blessings come in his own time and in his own way, 38 years, 12 years, immediately. As your trail will demand, so his succor will be. His is a mission of condescension. Jesus Christ will meet us where we are, as we are. This is the why of the garden, the cross, and the tomb. The Savior was sent to help us overcome, but staying where we are won't bring the deliverance we seek. 
Just as he didn't leave Jacob there in the dirt, the Lord doesn't intend to leave any of us where we are. His is also a mission of ascension. He will work within us to lift us up to where he is and, in the process, enable us to become as he is. Jesus Christ came to lift us. He wants to help us become. This is the why of the temple. We must remember, it's not the course alone that will exalt us. It's the companion, our Savior. And this is the why of covenant relationship. When I was in Israel, I visited the Western Wall. For the Jews, this is the most holy site in Israel. It is all that remains of their temple. Most wear their finest when they visit this sacred place. Their choice of garment is a symbol of their devotion to their relationship with God. They visit the wall to read scripture, to worship, and to pour out their prayers. The plea for a temple in their midst consumes their every day, their every prayer, this longing for a house of covenant. I admire their devotion. When I returned home from Israel, I listened more closely to the conversations around me regarding covenants. I noticed people asking, why should I walk a covenant path? Do I need to enter a house for making covenants? Why do I wear the holy garment? Should I invest in a covenant relationship with the Lord? The answer to these good and important questions is simple. It depends on what degree of relationship you want to experience with Jesus Christ. Each of us will have to discover our own response to those deeply personal questions. Here is mine. I walk this path as a beloved daughter of heavenly parents, divinely known and deeply trusted. As a child of the covenant, I am eligible to receive promised blessings. I have chosen to walk with the Lord. I have been called to stand as a witness of Christ. When the path feels overwhelming, I am strengthened with enabling grace. Each time I cross the threshold of his house, I experience deeper covenant relationship with him. I am sanctified with his spirit, endowed with his power, and set apart to build his kingdom. Through a process of daily repentance and weekly partaking of the sacrament, I am learning to become steadfast and to go about doing good. I walk this path with Jesus Christ, looking forward to the promised day when he will come again. Then I will be sealed his and lifted up as a holy daughter of God. This is why I walk the covenant path. This is why I cling to covenant promises. This is why I enter his covenant house. This is why I wear the holy garment as a constant reminder. Because I want to live in committed covenant relationship with him. Perhaps you do too. Begin where you are. Don't let your condition hinder you. Remember, pace or placement on the path are not as important as progress. Ask someone you trust who is on the covenant path to introduce you to the Savior they have come to know. Learn more of him. Invest in the relationship by entering into covenant with him. It doesn't matter your age or your condition. You can walk with him. After we finished walking the Jesus Trail, Maya did not take back her rope. She left it tied to my scooter. 
For the next few days, my teenage nephews and their friend took turns pulling me through the streets of Jerusalem. They made sure I did not miss out on the stories of Jesus. I was reminded of the strength of the rising generation. We can learn from you. You have a genuine desire to know the guide, Jesus Christ. You trust the strength of the rope that tethers us to him. You are unusually gifted in gathering others to him. Thankfully, we walk this path together, calling out encouragement along the way. As we share our personal experience with Christ, we will strengthen personal devotion. Of this, I bear witness in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.
There's a place where fear has to face the God you know. You're not alone. Oh, my soul, you're not alone. 